0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Matthew Bennett, on looking at the American church and culture through the
1: eyes of a missionary. I think the lenses that a missionary brings to observing their circumstances and the the environments around them can actually be acutely beneficial to looking at some of the hot button issues that have been raised within evangelicalism and hopefully uh, presenting some ways that we can redeem and restore those very valuable core tenets while also being self-critical in a, a helpful and creative sort of way.
0: Matthew Bennett next. Is our American Evangelical House in order, or is it in need of a remodel? In his new book, Hope for American Evangelicals, Cedarville University professor Dr. Matthew Bennett inspects what he calls the American Evangelical Home, where he was nurtured and which he wants to see become a thriving and hospitable environment for guests. Matt, who's the book for and what are you hoping to accomplish with it?
1: The, the title talks specifically to American Evangelicals, and I, I would hope that that would be kind of at the the core of the the audience people who are particularly aware as we all have increasingly become in recent days that there are there are issues there are evidences of brokenness that are occurring in some of the the spaces that would be known as uh, american evangelicalism Um, at the same time uh, before evangelical becomes a dirty word or something that we want to get rid of i want to speak to the the value of what has historically characterized people who would take that label of evangelical on themselves you know just the the core basic idea of being Bible-centered people who believe the cross of Christ is at the center of history, and that individual conversion is a necessity, and that lives of sanctification and outreach are part and parcel with what it means to be in Christ people. And so I want to recognize those things as redeemable and inherently valuable, while also saying that I think... The, the the lenses that a missionary brings to observing their circumstances and the, the environments around them can actually be acutely beneficial to looking at some of the hot-button issues that have been raised within evangelicalism and hopefully uh, presenting some ways that we can redeem and restore those very valuable core tenets while also being self uh Uh, self-critical in a a helpful and creative sort of way.
0: The subtitle of your book is uh, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. And if you will tell us a little bit about that analogy of the house, how you chose that, and then in what sense is the evangelical house broken?
1: Yeah. So there's a sense in which um this is this book is broken down chapter by chapter through a running analogy uh that comes from my own experience of having grown up in one home and having that place be my my childhood environment the the, the home that was the house that was just a, a home to me It yeah. really formed my adolescence. Right. But then having been gone for it, from it for a time and then after my father passed away, uh, coming back, looking at that same space with an intent to help my my mom prepare it for sale and seeing those familiar rooms, but seeing them through different lenses, trying to say, how might this house be attractive to somebody who doesn't have maybe the tendency to, out of nostalgia or a deep history with this place, overlook some of its blemishes one of the analogies I use is uh, I can still feel through muscle memory exactly how much extra effort you needed to exert to open the kitchen cabinets (laughs) because they always stuck. But rather than taking them off the hinges and sanding it down and doing it more precisely, we just accommodated our habits as we were growing up to that to pull harder because it it didn't need a fix because we just knew this is what you needed to do in order to get the cabinets to open. Mm -hmm. But then when you start considering some of those some of those realities from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have a long you know, decades long history with a place where they have those habits, you, you want to say, what would it look like for somebody to consider some of these infelicities in the house as somebody who's considering buying it? Um, and, and that shifts your perspective so that those familiar things are seen as a, a newcomer would see them. And that helps you to identify places that could use a little more attention.
0: And then our evangelical house, uh, can, yeah. can you just kind of give a little bit of an overview of, of it? I know you, you're, the, the analogy carries through the book in terms of what you just described with your childhood house, getting it ready to sell. And then what about our evangelical house uh, do, do you see as broken, at least just sort of in a general sense, and then we can kind of drill down a little bit?
1: Yeah, so each room and uh, honestly each space, each chapter addresses a different aspect of our house and uh you know I'm paralleling this homecoming to a physical space to something that my family and I experienced as we had spent significant years in the Middle East and North Africa serving as missionaries and then came back to now work and serve in evangelical spaces. There's kind of a, a parallel between those two things. And each one of the rooms then that we tour through the house kind of addresses a, a different issue. And uh, to be forthright uh, a lot of these issues are those really volatile hot-button issues mm-hmm. like racial tensions in uh, I, I use the uh, the dining room as a space to address the uh, the racial tensions that are present in America and Some of the ways that the conversations are had uh, are increasingly politicized and polarized people who would say uh, the the way forward is by uh, appealing to critical race theory and some sociological programs to fix things, others who would say, no, that's that's giving ourselves over to communism, socialism, and all sorts of evils. Uh, I want to argue that uh, before we fight over those resources, we need to consider what resources does the church have to actually paving a way forward in some of these racial tensions? And I would argue that there's not only a theological press for the church to be encouraging a unity across some of these sociological barriers, but there's also a missiological benefit. Because our our society is looking at brokenness and tensions between uh, racial communities, and they're identifying something that we would agree is wrong and broken. But society, apart from the unifying work of the gospel, is trying to create a unity where they find disunity. But they really have no reason to have confidence that it is even possible. You know, tensions have existed from all, uh, you know, all different strands of history between different groups of people. So, the world is identifying a problem that is a sin-driven problem, but they don't have the resources to appeal to. Whereas we as Christians see that, identify tensions between races as something that is the evidence of sin. But we, within the church, actually have a a reality of unity in Christ that has torn down those barriers of separation between sociological people groups, and we're actually working from a fundamental conviction that we are more united than we're experiencing. So we're not trying to make or create a unity, we're trying to manifest the one that is true in Christ. And so I think as we start to think about those things, that is both a theologically Mandatory element of our of our lives as diverse people who are unified in Christ, but it's also something missiologically beneficial as we demonstrate to the watching world that the gospel is in fact the solution to a problem that they've identified but don't know how to solve. And so, each one of the rooms addresses a different issue with that idea of saying if we're thinking not in the categories given to us by society or our politicized binaries, but rather through gospel lenses. How would that reshape the way that we approach this tension, this problem, whether it's politics and nationalism, whether it's our the the divorce between our theology and our practice, um, or whether it's things like race um, and and how we address them. Is going to be reshaped by looking at it through gospel framed missiological lenses.
0: Well, the book is Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. And just taking a look at that, and you've, you've given a, certainly a, a great background of this, Matt. My guest is Dr. Matthew Bennett. He is the author of the book and a professor at Cedarville University. As you mentioned, you and your family were living in another culture in the Middle East. And just explaining, it, it, it's so interesting, uh, seeing this culture, your culture, the culture you came from, differently after being away from it. Did you experience what does some... Um, often described as culture shock when you returned, it, as kind of you explain. You explained, just going back to your childhood home, but what about coming back to your, your native culture yeah. and, and being gone for not a terribly long time, but how, how long were you gone, and, and, and how, tell us about the, was there a culture yeah. shock?
1: Yeah, we were gone for seven years. I would say they were a pretty volatile seven years in this country, though. I mean, yeah. in the book, I list a handful of major events that occurred um, that reshaped the America that we had left to one that we came back to that in a relatively tight span of time had had made some pretty significant cultural uh, changes. Um, I think of even just things like the way words work. There are a number of words that I found the students that I started teaching Using in ways that were not the way that I ever would have used those words, um, ways that seemed to have um, a, a different definition, even a, a clinical element to them that I did not, that I would not have associated with them prior to departure. And so that kind of keyed me off in some ways on, you know, the, the skills that I learned in going to learn the Arabic language, and then not just learning the Arabic language, but realizing that that language was usually freighted with Islamic understanding of those terms. And if I was going to use that language to proclaim the gospel, it wasn't just a recitation of verses that I needed to commit to memory and sort of vomit into the culture, but rather it was something that was going to require some further explanation to say, you're going to hear me say the word sin. And I think what that means to you on the basis of what I'm reading from Islamic theology is this, but can I tell you the way that the Bible uses this is, is slightly different. And let's, let me show you how this word works so that when you hear me say it, you know I'm not just using the categories you already have. Well, that's something that you sort of necessarily engage in when you're crossing cultures and using a new language. You have to do that, right? But the fact of the matter is, with living languages and cultures that are shifting sometimes very overtly and sometimes silently and and imperceptibly, those same skills of analyzing even if we're using the same language, the language we grew up speaking, analyzing how is my neighbor using that word today and is it in fact the same way I would mean it. I think the word love is a a premier example of that. I mean even in, in my usage I use the word love to talk about what the Bible describes is God is love. Mm-hmm. But then I turn around and I talk about how much I love pizza. Yeah. And so there's there's a pretty broad lexical use there. Well, you think of how love functions in broader culture, too, and we've got a whole catechisms coming within the culture that are saying things like love is love. And so that's a very different meaning mm-hmm. than what the biblical meaning is. So we constantly have to be doing those those inspections of our language and and worldview analyses even in spaces that are familiar to us and I think the missionary training that happens and is applied in a far different context is actually really beneficial to people in a familiar context as well lest we find ourselves proclaiming a gospel that either is nonsensical because the words we're using have lost their biblical mooring or is not necessarily uh, uh we're we're not perceiving where we're communicating something to a culture that is, is different than what we think we're talking to.
0: Well, well, there's a, a man, a uh, uh, missiologist, uh, Leslie Newbegin, uh, British, who uh, had a tremendous influence on you and, and whose thoughts are uh, woven throughout this book. Can you tell us a little bit about who he was, his influence, and, uh, and, and why he is so kind of prominent in this book?
1: Yeah, well, Leslie Newbegin serves as kind of a forebearer because certainly I'm not the first missionary to come back and say, "Hey, some of the skills that I learned over there are appropriate here." That's that's there's a long history of that sort of work. What I really like about Leslie Newbegin, though, is that uh, he as uh, an exemplar an exemplar of that sort of approach is somebody who was doggedly committed to the church at the center of the the Christ story that the Bible tells us and so he is uh, his ecclesiology is very thick and rich and mean,
0: and that uh, means ecclesiology is just uh, the the church right
1: yeah the doctrine, doctrine of the, of the church, church he's somebody who could not get away from the fact that if there is one gospel that is creating one people and calling us into local expressions then we are a people who are characterized by trying to live into this gospel story, while still being embedded in a bunch of cultures, whether they're foreign or familiar, that are going to be telling a different story. Sometimes loudly and angrily, sometimes kind of secret whispers of a different story. And if we are missionaries, our task is to identify where idolatry is happening and to speak of true worship in those spaces. And our skills of detecting idolatry are are needing to be sharpened for that task. But just because, like Leslie Newbegin who happened to serve in India, he was able to walk down the street and see idols in shrines physically in front of him. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to identify idolatry there. But then he realized when he returned home uh, for sort of a second career of writing and pastoring and uh, life as an academic, he realized that His training to identify idols maybe wasn't pointing to shrines and little alcoves in people's homes with physical idols, but there was still idolatry that he was sensitive to, places where worship was being misdirected away from the biblical commands to live out the story of the world that God has told in the Bible. It's found its climax and world-altering reality in the person and work of Christ.
0: Well, thank you for that. And and your book is called Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. And you gave us an overview earlier that you talk about our neighborhood, the dining room, the living room, the bedroom, our yard, and our address. Can you go through each of those aspects of our house from our neighborhood through our address and uh, kind of what you had in mind and how maybe how it can help us to think about what's happening around us?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the neighborhood is uh, kind of what I was just alluding to in some ways, saying that there is a living culture around us that is shifting and changing at all times. Sometimes it's easy to see where it is. Other times it's silent. I give the example of having a conversation across the fence when I came back to sell my home with my neighbor and finding out that one of their children found themselves at an Ivy League school. And I was Immediately congratulatory because i functioned under the assumption that that is a good thing to be celebrated Well because I hadn't been there. I didn't know that the family had actually been Arguing with this child and saying you should actually go to trade school, and you should take this trajectory with your life And so they were at a place that I thought was universally to be celebrated but reality was that there was some uh, there was some culture in this particular family that I wasn't attuned to, that I was actually creating some tension. Mm. And so there's there's some of those things that we need to develop tools of listening really well, um, asking good questions, and realizing that we are in a post-Christian culture that can't make some of the assumptions that we used to about how people view the world. Mm. So questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be human? questions like what is wrong with the world like identify where brokenness is because we all experience it right so how do you describe it and then once you've described it what would you propose as a solution these are things that tap deeply into the way people see the world and allow us then to be able to apply biblical categories to be able to compare hey is is your answer here something that actually is reconcilable to the world and if it's if that's the answer you give does it deeply satisfy the deepest parts of your soul? If not, can I propose to you that maybe there's some different ways of seeing a different story and different answers mm. to these things that then can lead us to thicker presentations of the gospel? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the overarching part of it. As we go through the dining room. That's kind of uh, the call to say the the table is something to be expandable. Like there is a beauty in the gospel that we can invite people around this gospel who otherwise wouldn't share a common table, we have yep. reasons sociologically to be divided, but this this gospel brings us together.
0: Everybody's Living welcome room? at
1: that table. absolutely. Um, the living room is a discussion kind of about how we as a family thought this was a place of respite where we can let our hair down. But then as I came into it, I realized it's surrounded on two sides by windows that show off to the street. And so some of the ways that I thought we were enjoying just private moments as a family of relaxing were very visible to passersby. Just like the way that we as a church sometimes will out on the streets proclaim the gospel and talk about unity and then withdraw into our little enclaves and pick at apart one another and criticize one another, attack one another on social media, not realizing that we are putting on display mm. something very contrary to the gospel for the watching world and then trying to wonder why they wouldn't want to be a part of this. Um, so looking at some of those Uh, discrepancies. The bedroom looks at sex and sexuality, clearly a hot-button issue, and it does touch on some of those uh, changes in our society that um, our society has looked to sex, sexual expression, and some sort of sexual identity as something to ground a person's personhood on and their identity, and that is far too feeble a structure to support such a weighty need. And so, trying to help us to see before we get to any of the the biblical ethic, which we need to uphold and support, mm-hmm. it's what the Bible teaches, but before we get to supporting that traditional historical ethic, we need to recognize that our friends and neighbors around us who are trying to support the weight of their need for a meaningful identity, they're trying to build it with insufficient materials. But then I, I turn the... Tables a little bit on the church, and sometimes you've you may have heard recently some of the critique of what's called purity culture, and uh, heightened attention to you know waiting until marriage to engage in sex. And I, I tried to look at that and say these biblical ethics are absolutely to be upheld. We we can't squelch on those things because that's what we're called to by our Creator. Mm-hmm. We also have to identify that I think sometimes we've been guilty as a church of. Buying the whispered hope of society that sexual gratification is where our deepest fulfillment will occur But we've baptized that idol and just put it behind a biblical Ethic Hmm. so we've said you can't have sex until you're married But sex is still going to ultimately fulfill you Hmm. so Boy can't you wait until you get married and we put this pressure on the the beautiful gift of sex to be sufficient to support our our needs and our deepest hopes but then we think that we're still doing god-honoring work by just keeping it behind a hedge of biblical ethic Mm -hmm. i think uprooting that idol and saying sex is a good gift from god within the constraints of a committed um, male and female marriage all of those categories but it's never ever been intended to give us our identity so let's let's go far enough to remove the whole idolatry from our concept mm. of sexuality rather than just kind of taking some of those whispers and so on and so forth there's and then the the address um the address chapter looks particularly at what does it mean to be a people of dual citizenship whose primary allegiance is pledged not to a nation state but to a king in the heavens and then how does that affect where we put our hopes how we engage in political uh, discussion and discourse. What are our responsibilities in a democracy to speak out and fight and vote for the common good while also not thinking that if government protections or conveniences are withheld from the church that somehow we cannot faithfully live out our primary citizenship. Read the New Testament and you've got plenty of people who faced lower kingdom punishment while still saying, yeah, but the gospel is going forward. So my chains have not stopped the gospel, as Paul says multiple times.
0: And I'm wondering one aspect, uh, Matt, the yard?
1: Oh, yes. In the yard, that's really looking, it's giving the analogy of the backyard that I grew up with. had every opportunity to be nicely manicured and filled with all sorts of beautiful things that would uh, really be hands off. You know, it looks good from, from the curb, it has curb appeal. But really, functionally, you don't want to walk across that grass because it's pristine. Well, my parents didn't treat our backyard that way, even though it had the potential for it. Instead, they ended up pouring a cement slab right down the middle of it and put a basketball hoop in there so that I could practice my my basketball and have fun and more than that. Mm -hmm. So that after work, my dad could spend countless hours beating me time after time in one-on-one games. But then... Teaching me what it looks like to be a man, what it looks like to face defeat and to persist and really shaping me, discipling me on that space. And the, the parallel to some of our ministries is that sometimes we want to either brand or curate a certain vision of our ministry or our church. We want to sort of uh, develop a lot of efficiencies in some of our structures and programming that really look nice but which sometimes actually fight against the the life-on-life life pieces of disciple-making. And I want to call attention to the fact that none of our programming should push us farther away from interpersonal engagement with the people that we are responsible to do life with, to disciple, and to pour into. And so rather than trying to curate something that has curb appeal in our ministry, let's make sure that all of our structures are facilitating that dirty daily work of living out the gospel, helping one another put sin to death, and trying to, by the power of the Spirit, display Christ in us.
0: Hmm. Well, the book is "Hope for American Evangelicals: A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House." My guest is Dr. Matthew Bennett. He's uh, uh, he teaches uh, at Cedarville University, and our, our time has gone so quickly, Matt. But recognizing and, and you you make this point in your in your book that churches that evangelicalism, if you will, American Christianity, it's not monolithic. Uh, we we have that those commonalities, of course, of faith in Christ alone for our salvation, belief. In the in the authority of the scriptures and so on, but but the churches vary uh, in many ways, individual Christian churches. But are there a few takeaways that you'd like all churches, pastors, leaders, even Christians in general, to consider in recapturing this what you call a missionary orientation to to
1: living where we live? The last chapter really touches on the fact that um, in some ways, uh, I think though I used Leslie Newbegin, he would critique me for the way that I use him throughout the individual chapters, because each chapter I suggest, well, why don't we put on our missionary lenses and look at this issue through them? Well, the thing that I think he would critique me on is that these lenses aren't something extraneous to the church. They're not something outside of the church that you can choose to put on or put off. But rather, the New Testament church is, in its very nature, a missional community. And disciples who are caught up into the lived story of the Bible, seen through the center point of the gospel, and now exhibited in fellowship and partnership and outreach with one another, the church itself was always to be a signpost of the kingdom, not just a gathering space for Uh, for waiting for the eschaton, for waiting for the the end days. We gather as a church to worship, to be conforming our lives under the authority of scripture, to be under the shared uh, covenant that membership brings us into to care for and to exhort one another. But then we also scatter on mission to be disciples who are by consequence of our discipleship, also called to be disciple-makers in the spaces that the Lord sends us. And I think that if we recaptured that sort of a missional core to what the church is and what it means to be a disciple, it really would reframe the way that we come at some of the issues that are really cultivated and curated more by some of the binaries that our, our culture uh, presents us with. Typically, Uh, political opinions. So if I tell you that I am an advocate for uh, the right to life from womb to tomb, but then I also tell you that life at the border is precious, for many people they'd say those are irreconcilable ideas, because one is associated with one political party and the other with another party. But that only gives away the whole story that you're looking at these issues not through biblical lenses but through republican democrat lenses and so if we were to take off some of those americanisms that shape the way that we look at issues and instead look at them through the gospel we'd say oh wait a minute maybe some of our political binaries have actually forced apart things that jesus and scripture would hold together and maybe that shouldn't be the ultimate Uh, our political lenses should not be the ultimate determiner of what we think is right and good.
0: You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Matt Bennett, professor at Cedarville University and author of Hope for American Evangelicals, a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at this same time for another edition of His people.